This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And I'm here with Return from Europe in fresh form, I'm sure, our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Hola. And joining us <laughs> and joining us once again is our Hollywood editor, Hilary Bises. Hello. I've just returned from Brooklyn, which is almost as exotic as Europe. It's, yeah. What a journey. <laughs> uh, Joanna and Rich are both on well-earned vacations this week, so we're going to be catching up on a lot of things without them. We're going to talk about the Cannes winners that were announced over the weekend, uh, and Mike has a couple stories from the Vanity Fair Cannes party, which you heard about a little from Richard last week. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the new special Emmys issue of Vanity Fair that is going out to readers this week that we all had a hand in working on and kind of the sense of the Emmy season we all got as a result of working on that. Uh, and then the back half of the episode will be Hillary's interview with Tommy Kale, who is one of the main creative forces behind both Hamilton and FX's Fosse Verdon, which is actually what we're here to talk about. I'm making jazz hands, but you can't see. <laughs> so first of all, let's catch up on Can. Um, Hillary, I think you were probably as clued into Can Buzz as anyone who wasn't actually there could be. You were editing all the reviews that were being filed from Can. So when uh, Bong Joon Ho's Parasite got uh, named the Palm d'Or winner, were you surprised, or did that feel like exactly where things were headed? It felt like where things were headed, given like the quote unquote Twitter discourse, uh, in as much as that is predictive of what will actually happen, you know, given that the people on the jury are not the same people who are talking about these things on Twitter. Um, it was a unanimous decision, though. Clearly, there was a lot of support for this movie. Um, I feel like it was kind of a combination of the movie being great and a lot of people feeling like this was Bong Joon-ho's, like, due, that it was his time, um, which is always a powerful narrative, as we see during award season. And, Mike, when you were there in Cannes, had Parasite screened already? Were you hearing people actually talk about it in person? I don't think so. No, it was not. Uh, we were really like at the pretty early on. That's one of the funny things about Cannes is like things will like really premiere. It's not like in uh, like Sundance or Toronto where there's this really big cluster at the beginning and then it um, it kind of fades away. Everything is kind of premiering as it goes. Yeah, and Once Upon um, a Time in Hollywood was also on the later side, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that they were trying to spread it out more. I mean, the, the things that I heard about this year can was, and you guys uh, probably talked about this with Richard, is like they were trying to rely less on Hollywood. They were trying to not front load it so much, and they were trying to make it more about a celebration of global film. So I think that that, it, that was reflected in the schedule and everything else, the programming. And in the winners, probably. I mean, you've got, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood didn't go home with anything. Um, and maybe the, the best comparison to that from last year was Black Klansman, which won a major prize and kind of launched its Oscar campaign from there. Um, and just kind of looking briefly, like, most of the major winners were all foreign films, which seems pretty typical for Cannes. 
Yeah, and I think they just, in a way, it's like they decided that they couldn't compete. It seems like they decided they couldn't compete with Toronto and Telluride, and so they decided to go a different route. Um, but of course, they probably, on the other hand, are sort of hoping that they will have a new kind of influence on on the Oscars. I don't know that that the Candor winner is going to get a Best Picture nomination, but like even pushing into you know Best Foreign Language could be a good thing this year. Uh, yeah, Katie, you were looking into uh, the correlation between Palme d'Ors and uh, Oscar nominations. What were your findings? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the crazy thing that, like, I'm not the first person to say this, but that no Korean film has ever been nominated for, uh, well, I guess what's now the best international feature film, they changed the name, but uh, there's never been a Korean film nominated there, which is completely crazy, uh, given how many strong filmmakers come from that country. So if nothing else, I feel like Parasite has the potential to make history there. And then, you know, last year's Palme d'Or winner was Shoplifters, which was nominated, but got uh, beaten for foreign language by, you know, the steamroller that was Roma. Um, so there definitely is, a when you win the Palme d'Or, I think, if you're a foreign film that like might need to convince a lot of Oscar voters, like the ones Mike's always talking about that are like watching their screeners and their Bel Air mansions, um, that's a way to get the attention of those people. Uh, you know, you could have a million critics love you, but you kind of need these bread and butter Hollywood people to to know that you exist. And Palm Door winners definitely have that advantage. By the way, I was I was thinking surely China has had loads of nominations, but actually, and the first one that came to mind was Raise the Red Lantern, which you know, did get nominated back in 91, I think. And then Hero, uh, also by Zhang Yimou, was nominated in 2002. And I thought, well, there must be a load more. Those are the only two. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What? That is wild. That is insane to me. So um, so maybe well, Ken Hong will Kong serve Well, Hong Kong gets counted separately if you want to look for Hong. Like, Hong Kong's got a few more. But, okay. Uh, and I guess maybe Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, Asian films are historically really underrepresented by uh, the foreign language category. So, and, and that's been changing, I think, in recent years as the membership has gotten broader and the, there's a kind of a executive committee to make the nominations a little bit uh, more diverse and in touch with what critics are saying. So hopefully that all works in Parasite's favor. The category title has changed, but the criteria haven't changed, right? It has yeah, gone from exactly. foreign language to international film, but otherwise it's the same exact category. Yeah, it seems like maybe they just thought foreign was not like the best <laughs> word to put in this category, which I, I I am with them on that. That's right. We have to stop calling it Although by does, that old term. <laughs> but does that invite you know questions about whether movies from English speaking countries should be nominated in the international film category? I mean, like, can an Australian movie be an international movie? Yeah, it's like it's a tough distinction because like I get why they have to do that because like otherwise like British films are just going like, to come in and run all over the category probably, and you know Australian films that are like maybe made in a uh, you know local dialect or something like that would have, stand more of a chance. But I think for now they're keeping the category the same. Um, the thing in the Cannes Awards that I kind of got excited about Oscar-wise was that Antonio Banderas won the Best Actor Prize for Pain and Glory, the Pedro Almodovar movie. He and Almodovar go way, way back. Antonio Banderas has never been nominated for an Oscar. Like, that feels like a campaign I'm going to be really excited to watch happen. That'll be fun. He didn't get nominated for The Mask of Zorro? What the hell? <laughs> he got he was nominated on your in my fourth grade heart. Get it together. As Most Beautiful Man. <laughs> Academy. Most Beautiful Nason XB. <laughs> Do you guys read anything into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood not getting any major prizes? Like, it, it feels like something that we're going to be talking about no matter what Cannes did with it. Um, but it definitely would have been a boost for that movie had it walked out of Cannes with some kind of big prize. It is interesting because I met Quentin Tarantino at the party that we had and we were talking about how Cannes has been 
very good to him, you know, going all the way back. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, you know, played at Cannes, and pretty much almost everything he's done is played at Cannes. So at some level, you would think, okay, if they like him that much, then give him an award. And what you don't want if you're Quentin Tarantino is for the big takeaway and recollection uh, from Cannes is for people remembering that you kind of got really annoyed when a bunch of people asked you why Margot Robbie didn't have any more lines than she had. That and yeah. that the movie was made it there by the skin of its teeth, right? And wasn't he finishing it, you know, a week before the festival began? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's okay. That can even be kind of cool, you know? I remember um, once being at Toronto, waiting to watch a screening of 127 hours, and Danny Boyle came out and said, I'm sorry to keep you all waiting, but I just finished the film. <laughs> you're, you're the first to see it. I mean, that can, that can be exciting, but um, but certainly being a kind of like cranky, middle-aged white guy uh, who doesn't want to answer questions and about sexism is not like a really great look on the global stage, global film stage. It does seem like we are in for a long summer of discourse around Quentin Tarantino and not necessarily like everyone's going to be mad at each other, but there's just there's a lot to dig into, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in summer movie season. Yeah. And also, I mean, he's always been a provocateur. He's obviously done lots of things to get a reaction and to tick people off, which is sort of why it was funny that he seemed so kind of annoyed. I guess this he did not, not do I to would... get an atta- an, uh, an, a reaction. Yeah, that's not what I would expect. I would expect he would be excited. I mean, maybe not excited, but you know, eager to engage with people who are fighting with him because that does kind of seem like his personality. Yeah, yeah. So... Anyway, but but uh, I still think everyone's excited to see. Look, if you've got a new Quentin Tarantino movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, start there. Like every and Margot Robbie, everyone's going to go see it for themselves and make up their own mind. No one's going to just say like, "Oh, well, the French didn't like it as much as I thought they would, so therefore it's not relevant." <laughs> Yeah, hearing that Leonardo DiCaprio was having fun and kind of doing something other than like being visibly tortured on screen, which I think has sort of unfairly become his reputation, but he's definitely gone in for a lot of that. He just has so, he and Brad Pitt both have so much movie star charm that they work so hard to cover up a lot of times. And I'm really (laughs) excited to see something else come from them. The Run Through Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, Mike, you were at Cannes very briefly uh, to attend Vanity Fair's party, which uh, Richard talked about a little bit last week, but it sounds like you did some good uh, rubbing elbows as well. 
Yeah, and and uh, Richard and I met uh, Alfonso Cuaron, or it was like a reunion, and of course I had to remind him, oh, I saw you at Telluride, but that was exciting to see him, and obviously he's on a, a bit of a victory tour after after having a lot of success with Roma, even if he didn't win Best Picture. Um, and there were lots of cool Did you people. ask him his feelings on Green Book? I would, I would love to get a few, I, few few champagnes into him and see what he says. You no, know, I didn't. I should have. What do you think <laughs> of Green Book? Problematic or no? <laughs> And then at dinner, I got to sit with uh, Miles Teller and Chloe Sevigny, which was really fun. And uh, I got to ask a very, like, guy who's 44 years old in 2019 question of Chloe, where I was like, what do you really think of kids looking back? Come on. Like, I want to know for sure. Uh, We can talk offline. I can't, you know, it's sort of quasi (laughs) off the record. The one thing I think I can say is that Miles Teller was talking a lot about how awesome Tom Cruise is to work with on on Top Gun. He seems really, really psyched about that movie and about just getting to know Tom Cruise. And um, is Miles Teller basically playing like the Shia LaBeouf role in that movie? I mean, that would be my assumption. Yeah. I guess we don't. You know, it's it's hard to tell. I didn't ask him a bunch of probing questions about it. He w- he was saying things like, "Do you know that the reason we do like international tours and go to China to open movies is because Tom decided that that was a good idea? You know, stuff like that." <laughs> so he's like really into Tom Cruise, which makes me excited to see Top Gun. I feel like that's you know that's a good sign if they're having fun and getting inspired by one another versus Would the Would you opposite. say that Miles Teller was being a good wingman? Yeah, huh? yeah. Huh? <laughs> there you go. Also, yes. warning to Miles Teller: like last time, a young guy tried to come in on Tom Cruise's franchise. It was uh, Mission Impossible with Jeremy Renner, and uh, Tom Cruise took it back. So I don't know if, Tom, well, if Miles Teller thinks he's getting Top Gun, he might be wrong. <laughs> well, I guess this means that Miles Teller is going to get a Disney Plus show eventually. So if he just stays <laughs> the course, a, it's a happy ending. Yeah. So anyway, it was it was a really great party. Um, Radhika was a great host of this party, and um, she and I got to talk to Quentin a little while together, and there were lots of cool people. So so that was fun, even though it was pouring rain, and we weren't able to go out on the terrace, which is sort of usually a nice thing to do. But that kind of made it fun, too. It was very, like, everyone was sort of on top of each other, and the smokers had to huddle together, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> the, sm- the smokers always being the highlight of, uh, of parties like this, where you really get the good gossip. It really is. That's where you kind of find your Gary Oldmans and your Willem Dafoe's <laughs> and, you know, all the fun stuff. Um, well, let's move on from glamorous can, rain or no, to uh, television, which we all experience in our own grimy houses, uh, but that makes it all the more fun to talk about. Coming out this week is the Vanity Fair Special Awards issue for the Emmys, which uh, we have all been working hard on these last couple of months. Uh, and I think, it, I feel like at least gave me an interesting perspective on what the Emmys race looks like, because it can sometimes be so hard to wrap your hands around. The eligibility dates are weird. There's so many shows to talk about. And uh, Mike, you were kind of uh, spearheading the editor's letter that runs at the front of it and talking about kind of the sense of, of beginnings and endings around all of this with a lot of high-profile finales and also these new shows. Um, like, what, what read on the Emmys race did you get at the end of all of this? Uh, good question. <laughs> Big question. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the Emmys, the Emmys are so ridiculously huge. There's so many possibilities. You and know, getting think, huger every year. Yeah, we have a document that we try to use to say, all right, who are the people who are really likely to get nominated? And I feel like it's five pages long of single-spaced names, you know? Um, yeah. So it really is hard to kind of to wrap your head around. And so I think, you know, what we, what we, the way we tried to approach this whole thing was to say, in addition to that, 
yeah, obviously there are, you know, Game of Thrones is ending, Veep is ending, uh, The Big Bang Theory is ending, and then there are a lot of cool, interesting new shows, but also sort of just taking a look at, like, what are people really talking about? And I think that, you know, so Julie Miller, for instance, has a piece on um, on all these documentary shows like the Fire Festival and, and Finding Neverland and asking the question, like, what real-life impacts do these actually have? Because obviously we're all, you know, we're all talking about R. Kelly, we're all talking about Michael Jackson. That's clearly, like, a big sort of, I think, new phenomenon on the landscape where it's like, if we're not sitting around talking about Game of Thrones anymore, we may be sitting around all talking about these big kind of documentaries. You know, the acting race is really exciting this year. And so our cover star, it's really exciting. It's an incredible shoot um, of Patricia Arquette and and a cat, in fact, uh, <laughs> who has already won the SAG and the Globe for her unbelievable performance in Escape at Denimara, directed by Ben Stiller. And so Joy Press has a really great profile of her, and uh, and so that's really exciting. And then we have this really great portfolio in the back with all kinds of cool people, including Sophie Turner lounging in the sun, which I kind of enjoy seeing, um, mainly because I've thought that Sansa's like arc at the end of Game of Thrones was the only thing that didn't make me want to throw a brick through my television. And, <laughs> and it's just nice to see her in a pool, like getting yeah. warm to, weather, yeah, getting sunglasses. to wear sunglasses, right. not, <laughs> not having her heavy northern battle armor dresses. Yeah, she's not in like a uh, leather and fur armor ensemble. Free uh, Sophie. <laughs> Yeah, so there's lots of cool stuff in here. I hope uh, I hope people will. It's going to be sent out actually with the summer issue to our subscribers in New York and LA. So I think it, I'm excited that a lot of people are going to actually get a chance to see this, and all of the great stuff that we did is going to be online. I wanted to loop back to Patricia Arquette for one second because not only is this story about her work on Escape from Adanamora and then the act uh, kind of amazing, but she is one of those you know Hollywood actresses who you know got to a certain age and felt like she wasn't getting the roles she wanted, so she turned to television. She was on Medium starting in 2005, so she was kind of really early on that run. So it's really interesting to see her go from being like, oh, what a shame, she can't get good roles, she's on TV. Then she goes and wins an Oscar for Boyhood, and then she goes and does some of this most incredible work of her career on television, which shows so much about how TV has changed and how savvy she's been about taking advantage of these opportunities. I know, and it's a and it's maybe a weird point to make, but I just love Boyhood so much that it makes me happy that Richard Linklater and Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke and everybody involved like did that crazy experiment, actually followed through with it. And in a weird way, it's like Patricia Arquette got that role at a time when, you know, you wouldn't expect to have a hard time getting roles and then won the Oscar, you know, 12 years later and has then since gone on to just be an absolute powerhouse in every way. And and yeah, her performances in both Escape at Denimara and the act are incredible. And she's just, yeah, like, like what a great story. And, and speaking of Quentin Tarantino, so fun to think of her in true romance, you know, way back in the day as this like wild child. And now she's this fierce woman. So it's really cool. Yeah. And she talks uh, about the roles that TV gives to women of, you know, euphemistically, I guess, of a certain age, women over 50 um, and how, you know, TV is actually giving women roles. Uh, whereas in movies, they kind of start to disappear, you know, at a younger age. And, you know, this is something that goes back to you know, prestige roles like this go back to her in medium, but also like Glenn Close and Damages, which I think was like mm -hmm. one of the first she was like Glenn Close, I think, was like the first like movie star, movie star to move to cable and like kind of pave the way for other actresses to follow in her footsteps. And now we have Patricia Arquette and we have, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Vive doing something very different. Um, but the two of them, I think, are the main front runners in their respective categories. Um, 
it seems like Game of Thrones is everywhere and we have a really cool Game of Thrones story in here about one of the more undersung presences on that show, which Katie, you can probably speak to more. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a story I worked on with Joanna about Brian Cogman, who uh, George R. R. Martin calls like the third head of the dragon of uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> it was uh, Benioff and Weiss and then Cogman, who started off as their assistant. It's this really crazy story where he was literally the assistant to these guys, and they eventually let him write his own episode. He became a co-executive producer. He was kind of the, uh, like, really the character guy. Like, he kept track of a lot of the dialogue-heavy scenes, so he wrote both the Jamie and Brian hot tub scene. I think in season three is kind of a famous moment between those two characters. And then in season eight, the moment where he knighted her in, in Winterfell, which I thought was an emotional highlight of the entire last season. I would um, agree with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have your problems with Game of Thrones, there are plenty, but I thought that scene really stood out. Um, and what's interesting is he will not be making one of the Game of Thrones prequels at HBO, even though George R. R. Martin specifically asked him to do that. Uh, and he is over at Amazon working on a couple of different things. I don't think he's really at liberty to say exactly which, but uh, it's in the kind of meta Game of Thrones of all of these people trying to make prestige TV content, watching someone so major um, for HBO leave to go to Amazon is, is intriguing. Yeah, he might be the Bran of that operation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so secretly the Night King? <laughs> is that a theory? Uh, we don't have to get derailed. Sorry. Oh, yeah, that was definitely a theory, which I think is probably dead, but who knows? People might still be uh, running with it. Uh, Hillary, you should brag. What, what did you work on in this issue that you really like? Um, so something that we haven't talked about yet is uh, Kay Austin Collins' story about Keenan Thompson. He did a profile of SNL's uh, longest-running ever cast member. He's been on the show for... 16 seasons, which is incredible to me because, I mean, yeah, that's, you know, longer than, like, a lot of people who watch SNL have been alive. Um, longer than it took to make Boyhood. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's, you know, he's, I mean, something that Cam says in the story, uh, it's, you know, remarkable that he's kind of the only, like, actor, uh, like, child star of his generation at Nickelodeon to have this, like, long sustained career um, and basically has been doing the same thing the whole time because he got his start on the kids version of SNL on Nickelodeon which was called All That and it's a really great story um, the sort of premise of it is uh, is Keenan Thompson getting ready to leave SNL uh, spoiler it turns out the answer is no but <laughs> yeah. it is still a really interesting story um, he is he is you know the glue I think holding that show together and has been for several years now especially like, as this season ends, there is some question about who might be leaving, who might be staying. Uh, I think Kate McKinnon's contract is supposedly up, and A.D. Bryant might be nearing the end of her run. And they're also two big stars, two of the biggest stars on the show right now. But I feel like as long as Keenan sticks, sticks around, there will be some continuity and something to hold on to for people who have been watching SNL and, uh, and paying attention to it, maybe more attention than the show necessarily deserves for as long as they have been. Uh, people like me. Yeah, well, one, of the, one of the things I thought is interesting about that, uh, what Cam got uh, out of Keenan is the, the sense of how he works, which I think is somewhat rooted in his, you know, experience as a child star. He's not really necessarily pushing super hard to prove himself. He really seems to approach every scene and every episode, every every skit as like, how how can we make this funny? How can I help make everybody else as funny as yeah, possible? Yeah, he's like the ultimate team player, um, yeah. which is interesting because he doesn't have an improv background and that's something that you think of as being very much like UCB taught, like we're all on stage together, we're all supporting each other and, you know, com like stand-up comedy is known to be more cutthroat because people are more individual. Um, but yeah, he comes, he comes from a like sketch background doing this like kid sketch show and that like instilled th these same values into him um, and you can see it in his work because 
You know, he's not really doing very hard-edged stuff. He's, you know, just being silly. And it's really great to see that, especially, you know, now in these times, these times of ours. These times. <laughs> well, um, especially when you think about it, like so much frustration with SNL is that it's gotten kind of chewed up by the Trump era and it gets so consumed by political stuff. And having Keenan there to just be like kind of a, not pure comedy, but like to have such a totally different lane to operate in. I think it gives him such a strong position on that show. Yeah, especially when the political stuff is not that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's, he's a welcome, uh, I think, element in a lot of the political stuff where he just you know he's not an outrage guy he's a kind of like gives you that look being like you believe this shit you know and yeah, when and, he shows up as like a ben carson or something yeah yeah and uh or, or even his game show stuff because sometimes they'll do kind of politics game show combinations you know his, his little asides are very much like in the service of sanity i feel uh mm-hmm. so anyway we all love keenan and, and this is a really good piece yeah um, um and speaking of comedy uh laura bradley also had a late night roundtable conversation with Seth Meyers and Deezus and Marrow, um, which is a really fun read for any late night fans, or even if you're not, honestly, because these are three guys who have a good rapport and seem to really enjoy just like hanging out and shooting the shit. Um, yeah. So that was another fun one. Um, you, Seth is kind of like the old guard at this point. He was on SNL for, I think, 100 years and then started hosting late night <laughs> um, like five years well, ago. And- Pieces like that prove that people like Seth Meyers get so omnivorous in their interests. Like, you can sit him down with these and it's his marrow, and he's, like, super invested and is such a good talker, uh, and it's such a great way to use someone like him. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing I'll say from a kind of how the sausage gets made perspective is we try to do things exclusively with people, and when we asked Jesus and Marrow's people, like, what do you guys have going the, the list that came back was also, it was like, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff. There's a, Showtime is very invested in them. There's a lot of excitement around them. But to be able to put them together with Seth and have that unique conversation that no one else is going to get made it something that was really, you know, totally worth doing. And so I, Laura did a great job with that. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, it is a little maybe disheartening to see that all three of them think that Trump is going to win in 2020. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can let that sink in. We need Keenan right now. We're supposed to be right talking now. about Keenan television and Keenan. <laughs> fun and deflating. Oh, well. Speaking of heavy stuff, we also have uh, Nicole Sperling um, talking to Ava DuVernay about uh, When They See Us, her upcoming Central Park 5 miniseries on Netflix, um, which I've seen, I've seen like the first 30 minutes of and had to take a break. Um, it's yeah. a, it's yeah. a really, it's great, but it's also very, very heavy and, you know, it's going to require you to be in the right mindset, I think, to be able to handle it because it's, I mean, such a terrible story in so many ways. Uh, but David Duvernay is clearly the right person to be telling it. Yeah. Uh, and this story is actually online if people want to check it out. That's that's available now. And we should say, yeah, all these stories will be online eventually, even if you don't get the actual special issue. And Nicole pushed on the, the whole, the real story of, you know, the Central Park Five and Trump's involvement in it and all the rest of it. And uh, it really is just uh, <laughs> disgraceful. So, uh, so we'll all watch that. Uh, well, we will be continuing to cover uh, the Emmys race, obviously, both here on the podcast and on VF.com. Uh, all of these special issue stories will be going up online over time, so you get to see what happens when uh, when our obsessive awards season conversations uh, emerge in print form, if you get to get your hands on it. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. So now, Hillary, we're going to share uh, your conversation with Tommy Kale, who, as we mentioned, is one of the big creative forces behind Fosse Verdon, which is wrapping up its run on FX this week. Uh, we talked about the show when it first premiered. Uh, you've been keeping up with it. Uh, how has it really shaken out, this uh, kind of really ambitious musical theater-heavy series? I, I still love it. I loved it from the beginning. I have loved it all the way through. Um, I think it's uh, it may have seemed more conventional in the first few episodes than it got um, as it went forward. Um, it's non-linear. It does some really interesting experimental stuff that's, you know, clearly influenced by all that jazz. He has, at one point, Bob Fosse has, you know, this, like, nightmare, like, dream sequence, like, as he descends into addiction and considers suicide. That's, you know, a musical, but also, like, very dark and very, like, tongue-in-cheek. Um, and I don't know. I, I ate it all up with a spoon. Uh and uh, I hope that there are somehow more seasons, I guess. <laughs> or at least more of Michelle Williams doing, uh, you know, triple threat acting on television. It feels like such a gift. It really is. She is so good on that show. Well, let's listen to your conversation about all of that with Tommy Kale. Hello, I am here with Thomas Kale, uh, executive producer and director of Fosse Verdon. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. So we are going to be talking about Fosse Verdon, uh, the FX limited series that just wrapped its uh, finale of its eight-episode run. I was thinking that maybe I should start with some kind of spoiler alert and then realize that this is not really, I mean, is this kind of an unspoilable show? It's about real life. It is about real life. The story is out there. I guess how we tell it is the only thing that can be spoiled. But I also feel like if anyone's listening to this podcast. I mean, you probably know that Bob Fosse is dead. And so is Gwen Verdon. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> That's so the end of the show. That, that part is true. That part okay, is great. True. Um, so maybe we should uh, go back to the beginning. This is a show that was kind of born in the Hamilton dressing room, I understand. This is also true. Um, so please uh, take it away. So in June of 2016, right before Lynn left the show, he, he left like the first week of July. He got an email from his friend Sam Wasson, who had gone to Wesleyan University with Lynn. I had also gone to school there, but was a few years older than Lynn. And I was a, you know, I was three years older than him, and I was not talking to freshmen. So I think we all know <laughs> that goes. I was a senior when he was a freshman. I then met him as soon as he graduated, and we worked on the show called In the Heights together. So Lynn and I had made that show and made some other stuff. We, we made Hamilton. And then towards the end of the run, he said, my buddy who wrote this book that we had all read and loved just reached out to me and wants to see if I'm interested in uh, coming aboard to produce. And so Lynn said to me, and the biography is just about Bob it's Fosse. It's just about Bob Fosse. Obviously, there's a lot of Gwen in it, but the, it is called Fosse. It's a wonderful, an exhaustive book. It's probably like the definitive book about Bob. It came out like 2013 or so. And we'd all read it at the time. And Lynn knew that I loved the book. And I'd made uh, a, a live television thing with Fox and was trying to find something else to do with him. And so he said, what if we do this because it's FX sort of through you and use that as the portal? And so I... I Thought that was a swell idea. Occasionally, Lynn has good ideas. Um, this was one of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that tracks. Um, yeah. Sometimes when he reads books, it goes well. Um, and and so then, you know, immediately I thought of Rockwell, who is a buddy of mine, and and I I just started to see it a little what bit. What about uh, Sam Rockwell kind of said, like, he has the essence of Bob Fosse or he can perform the essence of Bob Fosse to you? Well, at that point, I certainly knew Sam better than I knew Bob Fosse. Mm -hmm. So what I knew is that Sam had 
this incredible charm. I knew he was a little bit dangerous and unpredictable. I knew he was jazzy in the way that he sort of moved through the world, not even in his physicality. I knew he had real physicality. I knew he's someone that had music in him in that way. I knew that he had a, a real sense of humor. He had a, a charm to him that was kind of this boyish charm that I knew Bob also had. And there's something about it that felt right. And I just kind of like floated it to people as I was, you know, walking around the streets of New York City. Um, not really, but actually talking to some friends. And I was like, hey, I might do this thing. Sam Rockwell, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, I think it had. Like, it just felt like, well, who else? Mm-hmm. And then... Did he have any dance experience? Not in an official way. He was like a break dancer as a kid growing up. And like, Sam moves. Oh, I want to see that movie. <laughs> uh, stay tuned. FX. <laughs> season two. Rockwell slash Rockwell. Um, but Sam was someone that if you watch a lot of his movies... Uh, has a lot of moments of movement and dance in them. And I knew it was something he was really struck by. I knew he had the the craft and the vigilance of a dancer, um, the way that he approached acting and performance, which I knew was going to be essential for this. And then in very early August of that same year, I happened to be in London casting for the West End production of Hamilton. And Sam was in the lobby of my hotel. I mean, like, completely randomly. Oh, and I thought... Synchronicity, yeah. Yeah, I thought, okay, we should have breakfast tomorrow and talk about this. And before we ordered the eggs, uh, he said yes. And he had mentioned to me, you know, because we were trying to find something to do over the previous years, he said, I'd love to do, like, a six-hour movie set in New York City in the 60s and 70s. And so that was also floating in my brain. And so he he got really excited very early and um, and then said, uh, let's do it. And so that's, that began the process, which was you know, really August, September of 2016. So a long while ago, but in the scheme of things, actually not that long. Yeah. Um, and so then the project, as I understand, took a little bit of a different turn once you uh, went to meet Nicole Fossey and kind of realized that there was this great untold story about her mother, Gwen Verdon, who was not just Bob Fossey's wife or his muse, but his cr- creative collaborator and a real artist in her own right in a way that has not really been recognized in the public imagination. That's absolutely true. That, that's what happened. You know, um, Nicole Fossey has been really the keeper of the flame. You know, she has been maintaining the legacy of the work of both of her parents. And I didn't know her at all. I knew that I wanted my friend Andy Blankenbuehler to choreograph the show. Andy was a Fossey dancer and had done Hamilton and Heights with me, and we were longtime collaborators. And at this point, I'd met Stephen Levinson. And Stephen and I met... Who's another producer on the show. Who's another producer. Yeah, he was my partner in everything, along with Joel Fields. I mean, the, the three of us were really kind of this three-headed, I hope not monster, but three-headed, <laughs> three-headed thing. Um, so Stephen and I started talking a lot about the the project, brought on Andy, and then we thought that it was really essential that we sit down with Nicole just to tell her what we were thinking about doing, not even asking for permission, but just saying, here's who we are. I invited her to come see this musical that I made about a very complicated man that the world forgot. And, um, and I think that the way that Eliza Hamilton also became part of the story was you know, even like in the DNA of this thing. And then in talking to Nicole, it just became so apparent that she had this treasure trove of stories about her mother. And we started to learn how miraculous Gwen was. And then we went up to see Nicole in August of 2017. That was in like March or maybe like April or May. And then about two or three months later, Stephen and I went up and spent two days with Nicole. And it just became impossibly clear that it had to be about the two of them. So do you think that you could have done this show without Nicole? No. That is the end of the sentence. Like, no, I mean, and and I can't imagine that version of it, and I can't imagine having wanted to do that version of it. It was really important to us that she was there for veracity and as a resource and as a, a, a collaborator and a peer and someone just to kick around ideas with big and small. And then having her on set was really invaluable as well as, you know, the work that she did connecting us to the Legacy Project, the 
the Verdon Fossey Legacy Project, which had these reconstructors who spend their time maintaining the authenticity and the integrity of the work that Bob and Gwen made. So Nicole was just integral in every way. Mm -hmm. um, and so speaking of you know the integrity of their work, uh, so you are directing a show about a director, a director who has a lot of filmed work. Um, how much of your direction was consciously influenced by Fosse's? How much were you kind of trying to stay away from him? I mean, he has a very distinct style, these like sharp cuts. Um, and uh, the show is more naturalistic, I would say, except that it does have, you know, some flights of fancy occasionally. Um, so, yeah, just tell me tell me about that process for you. Well, you know, so I was one of a team of directors. So I directed five episodes of the eight, the, the first and the second, the fifth, the seventh and the eighth. And, you know, what I talked about really early with all of our writers and with Steven and, you know, Nicole in these early conversations, also with Sam and Michelle, is that I always imagine this as eight short stories in a collection more than eight chapters in a novel. So I think that that allowed the visual language of the show to evolve and be distinct depending on which story we were telling. So if you watch our episode that has a lot to do with Lenny, it feels very evocative and like it's echoing off of Lenny. Um, our first two episodes are quite different. You know, the first episode, which is really about cabaret, has a lot of the cutting pattern of cabaret, but also has these very theatrical conceits where we don't cut the camera and we sort of slide into the past. We had this idea that there was a permeability and fluidity um, with Bob's relationship to the past, whereas Gwen had sort of taken her past and shut it into this little box, so hers was much sharper. So as we got into a lot more of Gwen's story in episode two and three, you see that it's a lot more of those kind of hard cuts in that way. But there's a lot of rhythmic patterns and musicality to the way that we cut our show, and we had fantastic editors, Tim Strito, uh, Jonah Moran, um, and uh, Erica Friedmarker, and Kate Sanford, who also uh, cut one of the episodes. And we talked a lot about that, and we all, swapped. You know what I mean? Like we would we would watch everything together. Obviously I, you know, along with Stephen and Joel, I was watching everything, but the editors would look at the other stuff to also see some of the signifiers that we used in one episode so it could come back and we called back a lot of things. There are things that I shot in the first episode that ended up being used in later episodes and not in the first episode. And so we then kind of had this larger pot to draw from. Um, and then as the show goes on, you know, six and seven kind of function together. Episode five, it's kind of its own thing. That's uh, the bottle episode that's the bottle in the Hamptons. Episode. Yeah, classic classic Hamptons bottle episode. <laughs> um, and we knew, we, we always called that Who's Afraid of Bob and Gwen. Um, so we wanted it to be like Key Largo or Guess Who's Coming to One of these mm -hmm. things were like, it's raining, you can't go outside. What would happen if you put all of these combustible people into this one box? Um, and then the last episode is quite different because it really moves through time. It covers a decade, whereas the others, you know, we sort of used... Um, the 1970s as the trunk of the show, the tree trunk of the show, and then the branches went into the past um, and the roots would go into the past. Um, but really the essence of the show was from like 1970, 1978, and then occasionally would kind of, you know, go back to 1940 or go into the 1980s. And did you kind of feel like all that jazz is sort of like looming over you as, I mean, it's something that you have to cover, obviously. It is Bob Fosse's autobiographical story about Bob Fosse. He choreographs his own death very famously. Um, so how, when you were trying to figure out how to tackle that movie in that particular period in his life, uh, what were what were those conversations like? How did you land where you did, which is basically, it is a large part of the last episode of the show, but not the entire last episode of the show. Yeah, I mean, look, that that movie and the, the resonance of that movie are everywhere. And so we acknowledge that we we felt that that film was important for us to try to integrate in a way that felt honest. But the way that we would shoot a lot of our dance numbers, I think, might speak to your last two questions, which is 
Tim Ives, who's our incredible cinematographer, and I would talk about this a lot, along with our production designer, Alex Tijerlando, Melissa Toth, and Joseph LaCour, who did our costumes, is that if we were doing something that you could see on film, it would be recreated in terms of its aesthetic exactly, as close as we could get. But we would never shoot it the way Bob would shoot it. We would show Bob's camera getting a shot. We're like, oh, that's where he got Sally doing this in Cabaret. Or that's where he put the camera to do that shot down the line in the first Sweet Charity movie. Um, and there's only one Sweet Charity. His, his first movie was Sweet Charity. But we would have our Fosse Verdon camera somewhere else. So our thought was, we saw how Bob shot his dances. We don't need to recreate that. Mm-hmm. Let's show Bob making that. And I think that you can probably apply that same idea to all that jazz. So the way that we use all that jazz, you see a scene of Bob dancing with his daughter that he then put in the movie. We watch his daughter then seeing her father. It's a lot, There's a lot of meta in this particular moment, watching her father. And you directing Sam, playing Fosse, right. playing, yeah. Yeah, and then like, you know, and then you have, and then you have Michelle and Juliet playing young Nicole and Gwen, and they're being shushed in the scene by this PA who was played by the real Nicole Fossey's son. So you have the real Nicole Fossey's. Yeah, I mean, like, and then like the, the little top wobbled and yeah. we didn't know where we were. <laughs> so we knew we wanted to um, use this scene that's in the book about how Roy Scheider suggested to Bob that he do the run through of the crowd. So that happened, that was a real thing. And that was something that when Steve and I first read it, we both thought that has to be in our in our movie. Our, it's you know, our so TV poignant. Show. He gets all of this applause, uh, and then it stops, and then he realizes it's yes, you know, for the movie. That's right. And so, and and you see Bob get swept up, you know, in this moment, because he says to him, "God, that must be so great." Because they all forgive him, right? He makes a movie about being forgiven, casting the real Anne Ranking as his ex girlfriend, who was Anne Ranking, and casting a fake Gwen Verdon with Leland Palmer. So there's so many of these layers. Um, and tell me how uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, your Hamilton collaborator, another executive producer on the show, wound up in the scene playing Roy Scheider. Well, when I was first thinking about the show, I mean, years ago, like when we were talking about Sam, I mean, the next idea I had for casting, I was like, you kind of look like Roy Scheider. I mean, you're like, a, you're not as attractive or sinewy, um, but we should do that. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then like, we kind of got closer and he was like, hey, remember when you mentioned that? And I was like, yeah, no, I, I remember. He's like, well, what, what do you think? And I was like, I don't know. Do you have a SAG card? And so he did. Um, so I made him read for the role. Uh, no. So was that basically you auditioning him like Bob is auditioning and to play herself in the movie? That's right. Um, no, Lynn was offer only. Um, so we also wanted to keep it a secret. We thought that would be fun to have it sort of just be a part of the fabric of that last episode. But it felt like, you know, Lynn loves musical theater in such a profound way. And so there was something really exciting about letting him participate as an actor. He obviously has these other skills and these other talents, but we loved letting him, you know, wear a, a chest merkin. And, um, and, uh, oh, that, that wasn't real? That was not real, no. You heard uh, your first Chris folks. Fulton and Debbie Zoller, uh, hair and makeup, um, and, uh, and they, they really rocked it out, and the chest merkin lives on. <laughs> Uh, is it in your possession? Is it? I can't talk about it too much on this particular podcast, <laughs> but let's just say it exists. Okay. Well, I will look forward to when you're on Chess Markins today. Yes, that's getting right. into the details. That's right. Um, but we did break it here. We did break the news here. There's <laughs> thank the click. You very There's much. the clickbait. Miranda, uh, where's Chess Merkin? <laughs> Um, and so all that jazz, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Leland Palmer plays the screen version of. Gwen Verdon, and Gwen Verdon doesn't have a very big role in that movie, so that's, right. that's I mean, that's also something that this series is kind of correcting. It's, it almost felt like 
you know, retrospectively knowing, I guess, what we do now about Bob Fosse, that he's kind of downplaying her role in his life or his creativity, at least in that, like during that period, which is a really fascinating psychological thing. Especially when you think that, you know, one of the things that our series really gets into is that Chicago was Gwen's idea. And I don't know that that was public knowledge. I think there was a lot that we were trying to uncover and amplify for, you know, for the other side of the story that wasn't told. And, you know, we had a very simple question that was hanging over the typewriter in our writer's room early on, which is, why do we know his name when we don't know hers? And we really wanted to make sure that when you came out of watching the series, if you watched everything, that you could never forget her. And that was very important to us. And I feel like um, Michelle's performance is... Oh, it's certainly unforgettable. I, I mean, mean, it's I mean, it's extraordinary. And I feel like we've now, you know, we've we've tried to carve that out and I just, I'm excited for it to continue to reverberate because I feel like there's a larger story. And then, you know, the things that are written about the show outside of, you know, describing our show are talking about these kind of creative partnerships. You know, there's a larger conversation around that and that's been really exciting for us to see. Yeah, I I feel like I could spend easily another half hour just talking about how great Michelle is in this show. Um, And, uh, you know, it's also interesting uh, when she signed on, there was some like there were some headlines about how she and Sam were going to get equal pay for their roles in the show, which is something that, you know, probably shouldn't be headline worthy. It should obviously be true that the male and female leads of two of a show are going to earn the same amount for doing the same work. Um, but that also kind of speaks to how this show is, you know, a product, sort of a product of the Time's Up era. Um in that it's examining, you know, both of these people, both of their contributions. Um, and I mean, it seems like that was a, a real goal of yours. Absolutely. And, you know, when we went to go speak with Nicole Fossey, again, this was August of 17, we were about a month away from a lot of revelation that was going to drag things out of the shadow that needed to be illuminated. And so it felt that the only way to talk about this, honestly, was to go right to the center of it, um, both in how we were representing behavior in the show and um, you know, struggles with addiction and in so many of the challenges and the, and the gnarliness and the ugliness of a lot of this behavior. Like and representing could, it without glorifying that's it right. as and, and happens so often. And, and saying that the work justifies it, which was not interesting to us at all. No one that was making the show would would have taken that position. That they wouldn't have worked on it. That's not what we were looking for. That you for. can only, you know, make great art if you are a yeah. terrible person. And, and I think that that's such a, a like, I mean, I, I've worked my whole career I'm 20 years into a career that's just trying to say you can make high quality things with harmony because it's the only way I know how to do things and it's the only thing that I really care about is that people that work on shows that are are mine, whether uh, the world embraces them or not, that everyone walks away feeling they were heard and respected and seen. And so it made sense to everybody working on our show instinctively and of course these two were going to be paid the same. It just it wasn't even a company. It was like, well, that's what you do. You, you do what is right and what feels just and what feels... Uh, um, like it has integrity, and so there was, there was, uh, there was only that. There was only that. There was no other thought about anything else. Um, so I want to talk about the ending of the show. Um, Bob, oh, Lossi. have you seen it? I have. I can. <laughs> did you watch you last night? I did. Oh my gosh! It's. I mean, I would love the whole thing. Well, actually, wait. Before we get to that, I do also want to say thank you for giving Michelle one more opportunity to sing and dance. Um, I'm so glad that if you can see me now, made it into uh, yeah, the wasn't finale. That, that was and, and Susie Meisner, who came on um, for the last five episodes to choreograph, had worked on that number, and and when we got to the the stage where we were doing it, which is at SUNY Purchase, which is where Bob shot Bye Bye Life. Oh. So there was kind of like this this cool like um, you know echo of that. Um, it was the first time that we shot something from behind the performers out to the audience 
where you could see the emptiness of the seats. And because Bob and Gwen always craved that recognition from this anonymous thing, like there's that can-can moment where you never see the audience, but you feel the audience. And so I really love the idea that we were in work light, that you just saw the emptiness of that. But Susie and I were talking and there was this moment where Gwen says the word now, and she kind of reaches with her cane. And in the show, when they do Sweet Charity, a spotlight would come on. And so I said, well, we should do both ways. Let's do it just without it and just kind of keep it naturalistic. And then let's take a big swing. Let's do something theatrical. And when I saw Michelle's eyes light up and Susie got really excited and the crew got really into it, I was like, okay, you know, let you know Stephen know, like, we're going to try this. So we just did both of those things. But that was the one we always really wanted to use. And, and those those gestures, the affection, the conversation between the two of them in that, you know, with, you know, old grandma Gwen getting up like, oh, I couldn't, these old, I couldn't, you know, and then like, don't make me sing. Give me the rock, <laughs> you know, and then like in the way Debbie Allen knows she's in the presence of, I mean, with such, such generosity, you know, in, in that moment too. And it felt like it was a chance in the idiom in which Bob and Gwen existed to use the language of the show that defined them in so many ways and to come back to charity felt really right at the end. And there's this little moment in, in episode five where she's around the piano and she sings, where am I going? And Patty Chayefsky says, sing, uh, my friends could see me now. And she kind of poo-poos it there. So I kind of liked that we had like put this little seed earlier and then it comes back all the way to that. And, um, and just a chance to be back on stage with Gwen felt really satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of both uh, Patty Chayefsky and satisfying endings, um, at the beginning of this episode, you have the character played wonderfully by Norbert Leo Butz uh, yes. speaking about uh, Bob Fosse and all that jazz and saying that Bob has this habit of making movies and projects about characters who don't change, um, which is why he says your endings are always shit. It's storytelling 101. He's got a transform. It's called catharsis. Um, and he suggests that the ending of All That Jazz should have Bob realizing that, you know, the fake Gwen, the faux Gwen, is his soulmate, uh, the only woman who was ever his true equal as an artist. Um, he realizes this and it's too late and then he dies. I mean, would you say, is that also meant to be kind of like a winking meta moment? Is that kind of how you see the show itself ending? Our hope was that this made the conversation about the two of them as prominent as possible, that it it couldn't be just Bob anymore. And it felt to us that in the way that the series was scripted and we tried to tell our story, that there is no him without her and there might be no her without him. Um, and maybe there's a better way of saying that, which is, who he would be without her, we won't know. And we obviously don't know that for her. But these were two people that felt like artistically, even though there was so much destruction in their life off stage, and Bob is what I call a wartime general. He's someone that always had to have drama to work through, and some people do that in their work environments. Um, it felt like when the two of them were together, one plus one equaled three. And I feel like what we wanted to also do was acknowledge, even in the shows where she wasn't credited in any way, that she was right there and that she was in the trenches with him. And and she's all over these things. And she's in, and, and everyone that ever met Gwen or talked about the two of them together, they talk about her like this, you know, like this spirit that, you know, could interpret, but also maintain and create and articulate, you know, as she says in one of the early episodes, I speak Bob. Mm -hmm. And I feel like her approach to, to all of these characters was so rich and nuanced, and we wanted to demonstrate that. Um, so Bob has this very dramatic death scene, which is what actually happened. He collapses right. outside of the theater um, the first night of the new Sweet Charity revival. Um, there's 
you know, not a great moment of catharsis. He doesn't really have time to say anything big and profound. I mean, tell me, tell me about the process, I guess, of, uh, well, you didn't write the scene, but of, of shooting that scene of, but, but I was, you know, constructing. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I was, you know, uh, Stephen and I and Joel talked about everything, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot. Um, so originally that scene, because we knew that Bob died in Washington DC in Gwen's arms, outside the, the theater. I mean, literally like, you know, 10, 15 feet outside of the theater. Something that you couldn't script even if you... No, and no one would believe it. we probably, you know, give ourselves a note, like, really, it's a little on the nose. <laughs> it felt to us like what we wanted to try to do and what we could do in this medium was let their their eyes and their collective memory move through time. And so we came up with this idea of the two of them because the last thing Bob said was something's wrong. And we wanted that to be true. We don't know what Gwen said, but we do know that that's what Bob said. So Sam says something's wrong. He drops to his knees. He says something's wrong as he's down on the ground. And then we had this idea that we would go back in time from that moment and go in reverse chronological order to see them at their very first meeting. And their very first meeting is a really long scene in our second episode. It's like this nine-minute scene where he auditions her for Damn Yankees. Uh, for Damn Yankees. And it plays continuously. It was a really tricky thing to shoot. It looks very simple, but it was really kind of hard to, to pull off. And the two of them are just wonderful in the scene. And the end of that scene in episode two actually had about 30 more seconds that we didn't use. And so it was a really cool 30 seconds that we wanted to. It was really poignant where they basically look into the future together and say, I'm really nervous and so am I. And Sam Wasson in his book ends his book with that exact part, which is how it made it into our little audition scene, which nobody was present for. But, you know, we sort of used that and and then and Levinson wrote this really, you know, kick-ass scene. And so we thought it would be really powerful, potentially, if we could go in reverse chronological order from his point of view and her point of view. All of the things you see are two shots. They're all the two of them together. And we watch them go from their from their oldest moment in their last moment to their earliest. And then we get to extend past what we know as an audience existed and give you this little thing. Oh my God, that's that's from that scene. You know, we just thought that could be really satisfying. And what the two of them are doing in that should be shown to, you know, students everywhere. You know, what Sam says without uttering a word is remarkable. He says everything with his eyes and the longing of that and the work that she's doing there and just to the end, everything's going to be fine, Bobby. And then you see a moment when she realizes it's not. And all I can do is try to coach that. Like, you can't teach what the two of them have. My job is to try to create an environment where they can do work and feel as free and safe as possible. And that was the very last thing we shot. And it was about 35 degrees. And we were in White Plains. And we were on the sidewalk. And it was midnight. It was one of our very, like, few night shoots. We, um, we had long days, for sure. But we usually didn't shoot in the evening. And I remember being out there, and that crew was so dedicated and so so ready for whatever. And they knew they needed to be there for this for this moment in, in any way. And the fact that we, on our schedule, had the last moment of their life as the last thing we shot with them is not usually how these things happen. But we have, you know, we have smart producers, Erica Kay and, and Deanna, our, our AD, who, you know, built this schedule, allowed that to be the last moment. And I think it it gave a, a great sense of poignancy um, to to that, and I think you feel it in those performances. And had you considered doing something more theatrical, more all that jazzy? Not really, because he made such a stylized gesture for his own death, it felt like we wanted to be on the cement with him. And then 
and use the convention of film and television of being able to cut and go back and remember together as a way to move through time. And so we really, we liked staying with them, you know, in that very quotidian moment. Um, and then, you know, there's a there's like a little kind of epilogue of our show that's, that's after that, that's just a like button. a breath. Yeah, like a button to it. Um, but no, I mean, I think we, you know, there was, that's not true actually, now that I, go back into my Swiss cheese brain, there was a moment when we were talking about maybe ending with a big musical number. Probably, you know, we kicked it around for like a month or two, and then it became apparent while uh, we were already shooting the, the first couple, three episodes, so in the fall, that, no, let's let's go back and just be on the cement and be on the sidewalk and be, and be with them on that day. But we definitely talked about, and I think even outlined a version where it was like the the last act was a big musical number, but we kind of did was that. Was there a specific number that you No, we wanted it to be an original number. Oh. And so it's something that we thought maybe Lynn could write and we were talking to him and another collaborator, which we thought could be kind of cool. And, and yeah, I, sorry, I totally forgot about this. And we like really outlined something and like sent it to both of them and talked about it. And then it just felt like we didn't need it. And I think because episode four ends with the big musical act, mm -hmm. it's like we did that. And so it the did Ben Vereen the, and, yeah, the Ben yeah. Vereen Pippin spectacular. Um, so Pippin suicide spectacular. Oh gosh, that, that episode was so crazy. Um, Jessica Wu directed that and did a fantastic job. Adam Bernstein was our other director for three and then, uh, Mickey Spiro did six. Um, but it felt like we'd already told the story in that way. And there was something so powerful about this friends could see me now idea that felt like let's leave the musical moment there and then go out with the everydayness of what it actually is like when you're a performer. It's, you spend much more time off stage than on. Mm -hmm. um, and was there anything from the biography from Fosse and Verdon's lives that you wished you had had time to incorporate into the show, but for whatever reason just didn't fit, just mm -hmm. didn't seem as thematically resonant? I don't know if you ever considered like a Star 80 episode, I guess that would have been. We talked a lot about Star 80 for that last episode, you know, and, and we end up sort of alluding to it. Um, and Star 80 was, you know, sort of his final film and a, a pretty dark chapter in his life. And we just felt at the end, because Gwen had nothing to do with it, it felt like we have to find as many things um, to tell towards the end of our story that involved the two of them. So, anything so charity, was, yeah. Yeah, so, so charity on. made sense. And, and we, in, in the very earliest conversations Levinson and I had, we knew we wanted to come back to charity because we loved the idea. You know, Bob says in this, when you start directing revivals of your own stuff, like, your career is over, um, and I don't know that I agree with that. But, <laughs> but you know, this was someone who had only made new work, and so to go back to something, to revisit it, something that he made on stage with her, and then she doesn't do the movie, and then to come back to doing it, just felt like story-wise, we had to, you know, use that as as bookends, um, and so we did. So we knew that that would be how we closed out. But it just felt like the Star Eighty stuff was too Bob focused um, to be that deep in our story. And then it would be like Gwen's here, he's there, and and so we, you know, and where Gwen was, you know, doing guest spots on television shows, and you know, on Mr. Belvedere and Mash and things like that. You know, we we'd written a couple scenes even in that way, and and sort of thought about that, but they never made it to the really to the production draft. Okay. Um, and I mean, similarly for why not do, you know, a scene or two about Gwen after Bob's death, similar yeah, thought process behind that. Yeah. I mean, it felt to us like, you know, so much of our show is about, can you outrun the past and can you break these cycles? Um, both Bob and Gwen had serious trauma as, as young children, um, and tried to deal with it in the way that they could. And I think didn't have the equipment or the ability to do so necessarily. And Nicole 
you know, the, the thing that they produced that actually has run the longest felt like the way that we could tell that story and show someone who did get out, who left the city, who left the business, who went and, and made a life outside of all of this razzle-dazzle stuff. And so it felt like Nicole was always going to be the way we went out. And, and in some way, you know, we have this countdown in the show. And the countdown in the book, which is very prominent, and the epigraph of the book is, how much time do I have left? And as a director, I spend 90% of my day looking at a, a, somebody and saying, how much time do I have left? So that really like <laughs> resonated deeply with me and gutted me. And I love that as the frame for, for the book. But what we realized was, while that was only Bob, for us, it was going to be about the two of them together. So that's really what our countdown became, because Gwen obviously lived for 12 more years after that and spent a lot of time putting together this review of Fosse's work, where her name was nowhere um, and her credit was was quite small. But if you talk to anybody that worked on that show, Gwen was in those early, you know, rehearsal rooms, in those early workshops, and was really an essential part of it. Okay, great. Um, I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but well, um, I, I appreciate your questions. They're really thoughtful, and obviously, you, you really were getting everything that we were putting out there. So yeah, thank, thank you, you so for, much. Um, thank that. you so much for joining us. Uh, Fosse Verdon, great show. Watch it. I don't know what else to say. Well, you know, I think what I'm so excited about is that all eight of them are out there now. And I feel like this can be a summer where people can go and find them. And and I feel like the standaloneness of them is really exciting. But the the cohesion that, you know, these writers, you know, Oh, yeah, us, it seems built for binging. Definitely. Yeah, and, and I'm really excited for people to, to get a chance to find it because I think that I think the work that's being done by these designers and this and this crew, as well as these actors, is really pretty uh, sensational. So I'm very proud of it, and I'm really happy that you liked it. So thanks for watching it. Yeah, of course. Um, and I guess I'll see you back here in 40 years for uh, Kale Miranda. Um, Miranda Kale, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for taking time. Yes, of course. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please keep finding us and reviewing us and telling your friends about us. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Hillary. Hillabuster with two R's. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the worst pickup line goes to Mike Hogan. What do you think of Green Book? Problematic or No. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.